Welcome to the first episode of NAD News Points on the Air. I'm your host, Milan Medley, Assistant Director of Communication for the North American Division of Seventh-day Adventists. NAD News Points on the Air is a podcast that features topical, informative conversations about the Seventh-day Adventist Church in North America. It's 1.2 million members, educational and healthcare institutions and ministries, and how they impact their communities. Today's guest is Dr. Vincent Shu. He's a board-certified internal medicine, infectious diseases, and preventative medicine physician at Advent Health. He also serves as medical director of continuing medical education and assistant director of internal medicine residency program at Advent Health. He is also an assistant professor at the University of Central Florida College of Medicine. Advent Health is one of five Adventist healthcare institutions within the NAD territory. It is also one of the largest healthcare institutions in the United States, with 80,000 employees operating on nearly 50 campuses in nine states. Dr. Shu, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, I would like to get this conversation started. We're here to talk about reentry, something that is on the minds of a lot of people these days as school has restarted and people are going back to work and more and more uh, cities and counties are entering advanced phases of reentry. So we just want to talk about um, how to stay safe and how to keep our loved ones safe. So, so happy to have Dr. Shu here to talk about that. Um, but first and foremost, Dr. Shu, can you give me uh, an overview or can you describe your role at Advent Health? Thank you, Milan, it's good to be here. My role at Advent Health is that of a healthcare epidemiologist. It's kind of a big word, but really what we are focused on is ensuring the public health or the health of our employees, of our staff, of our patients, making sure that we are as safe as possible during the pandemic. Typically before COVID-19, we focus on healthcare acquired infections, but of course with the pandemic, with COVID-19, it's, it's all been about this uh, virus right now. Right, um, and can you tell me how Advent Health has assisted its community with re-entry? Um, I know that your organization or your, the healthcare system has assisted Disney Parks and I even hear that you are assisting the school, your local school system for your local county. So can you touch on that? I think the first thing to realize is that, you know, no person is an island. Everything that we do within healthcare interacts with the community. So it is to our best interest to make sure that the community is safe. We want to do this as a service, but also recognize that what happens in the community affects what happens in the hospital. So to that end, you know, we do feel a, a strong, compelling need to talk with every aspect of what could drive uh, what could drive the number of cases, and it's going to be institutions in which typically large numbers of people gather. So it's the theme parks, it's sports events, churches, schools, uh, those type of things, because those tend to be a large driver. So we want to make sure that if our community is as safe as possible, uh, that will also translate into a healthcare institution that is as safe as possible for our patients. And I love how you framed it. That is really an extension of um, your mission as Advent Health. Um, 
to reach your communities. But I was wonder if you, wondering if you can talk a little bit more about how you're helping the school systems and how Advent Health even assisted um, the Disney. Yeah, so, you did, well, I'll, I'll talk about Disney first. I mean, they are obviously a very large uh, 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 industry that brings a lot of tourists uh, and and we've always had a good relationship. I, th I think it always starts out with the pre-existing relationship you have and uh, our our uh, our leadership and their leadership has always had a a very good relationship with each other. We learn from them and so as this pandemic unfolds you know they were asking our leadership you know how can we again reopen as in as much a safe condition uh, as possible. From a school standpoint, we also have good relationships with the with our with the schools that we're based in. So, uh, the superintendent of the Orange County Public Schools, Barbara Jenkins, had talked to our CEO and said, "Is there someone who you know that could help out in in helping schools reopen? We want a medical advisory committee." So, as a result, uh, Doctor, I mean, uh, Daryl Toll, our CEO, said, I, "You know, maybe Vincent Shu uh, might be a good person to talk to." Uh, he helped us with uh, with the with Advent Health, and so they, so I'm the now the chair of the medical advisory board uh, that advises the Orange County School Board on reopening and and safety. And then the same thing occurs with a lot of the churches. You know, of course, we're active in our communities. Uh, churches are part of that, and so I got a number of requests from different churches about when is it okay to open safely? What do we need to do? And so I thought this is really a good idea to instead of dealing with each individual church to kind of talk with you and to be able to kind of discuss some guiding principles for all of us. Yes, and that's a perfect segue to what we wanna talk about today in detail about leaving your home or leaving where you've been, um, well, people in general have been quarantined um, have been quarantining themselves or their loved ones. So before we get to churches and even schools, let's just talk about leaving your home. Some like some questions that I and many others have had, um, particularly about wearing masks. I'm not wearing mine right now because of this interview, but at least in Maryland, it is required when you go into any public space, any buildings, any places of business, um, masks are required. However, what about if you're walking outside, going for a walk, a casual walk, um, walking your dog, I have a dog, I walk in a residential area. Um, if you're going for a run in your neighborhood and you're not running into many people, there aren't too many people out in the streets, um, but if you do see somebody, there's enough space to go to the other side of the road or you know, kind of scooch on the sidewalk for six feet distancing. So in that case, do I need to wear a mask when, out, when I'm outdoors? Yeah, so Milan, let's, let's start talking about the concepts of, of risk, you know, in everything that we do. And, and the first thing I wanted to tell our, my audience, uh, tell the participants here is that, you know, we're, we're, we are, we do need to open up. And unfortunately, there is no such thing as absolutely risk-free. There's always going to be some risk. But, but given that aspect, there's various degrees of risk from extremely, extremely low to, to high risk. And the things that you had discussed earlier, 
uh, that brought up about being outside. If you're by yourself, for example, yes, I mean, there's virtually no risk of spreading COVID to someone else just because we know how COVID-19 is spread and it's spread through droplets, heavy droplets, or it can be spread through the air. But if you're outside and you're far enough from someone else, I mean, those aerosols disperse and are just so in, in, you know, minutely uh, uh, unconcentrated or, 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 or diluted that it's just not gonna pose a risk to anyone else. So the general approach is the further you are away from someone, the better. If you're outside, it's much safer than being indoors because there's so much, it's so much easier for that air to just be diluted and dispersed. So we start with that. And then, you know, and then when you start talking about indoors or when you start talking about more people, uh, when you start talking about having to be close, then you need to start talking about masks. You need to start talking about disinfection. You need to start talking about the, the, the uh, HVAC or the ventilation because that becomes increasingly important. Yeah, so let's stay outside a little more because um, people, you know, birthdays continue. Um, we're not in graduation season anymore, but, you know, people had parties, people have um, anniversary celebrations, engagements, and they're taking it outside. And the gatherings can be more than 10 people <laughs> or people have play dates for their kids. So in that sense, when you are closer to people, but you're still outside, would you still recommend wearing a mask even though we're outdoors? Yeah, that's, you know, that is something that is going to have to be a, a decision for every organization, institution to make. I mean, the safer, if, if you want to be as safe as possible, the goal is to stay as far apart from each other as possible. Um, at, from an outdoor standpoint, my recommendation is if you are unable to be, if you are unable to be further than six feet apart or so, I would still recommend wearing a mask just because it is still possible to transmit even though the, even though it is more, even though the likelihood of transmission is definitely lower outside. If you can't keep that distance, um, then I would recommend wearing a mask. Now, if you're able to stay six feet apart consistently for what, from whatever gathering you have, then the likelihood of needing masks uh, becomes much lower. Right. And so now let's go indoors a little bit. If we are in an area where we can maintain six feet, but we're indoors, are homemade masks or masks that you can buy online, cloth masks, are they sufficient enough to keep us protected from the virus indoors, still able to maintain six feet, but are non-medical grade masks enough? Yeah, masks are still something that we are trying to get more data on, trying to figure this out, we certainly recognize that not all masks are equal. Mm -hmm. And so the commercial grade masks, the, the cloth masks with multiple layers are thought to be much safer than those that in which they have a single layer or they're more porous or they're more like net, you know, net weaving lace-like, those are likely gonna be very ineffective. Mm -hmm. So what you wear makes a difference and how you wear it uh, makes a difference. So. 
The advice is to wear as high quality of a cloth mask as possible if you're not able to get commercial grade mask. Make sure it's being worn all the time uh, inside. And if, if, even if you're six feet apart or more, I would, I would recommend that we wear masks just because there is the circulation issue and sometimes these viruses can be dispersed through the air uh, and, and what we, we call them aerosols and potentially can infect someone else that's even further than six feet away. And how long do these aerosols, especially if we're talking indoors, because right now I don't have a mask on, I'm in this large conference room, but once I leave, how long, if I had the virus, would my infected aerosol stay in the air? And I know at what risk am I um, imposing on someone who would come in for a follow or a meeting that will take place right after this? Are they at risk of contracting the virus if I had it and was speaking like this unmasked? Yeah, there are um, it, there's so many factors that play into how long that aerosol or the virus could circulate. It really depends upon how much air is circulating in the room, how large the room is, or so forth. I mean, the, the general approach, though, is if you're not too certain and if the room is relatively small, you don't think the circulation is that good, it could last, it could be in the air for actually several hours mm. um, if, it's, if, it's, you know, if you don't have good circulation. So typically we say a couple of hours for, for, for some cases. And, and again, if you are in a room that's larger or has good air exchange, you know the ventilation system is working and perhaps you've got a, a, a good filter, uh, then the time that's uh, required uh, to get those aerosols out of there is much less. Mm. Okay, so now let's transition to schools. That's um, a hot item in terms of news coverage and headlines um, and schools meaning anywhere from like daycare all the way to someone in a PhD or um, graduate school level, people who are re-entering classrooms. So if I am, well, a lot of schools, especially on the East Coast and South, have already begun and have welcomed students into their schools. But if I'm considering to remain, physically remain in the classrooms or have my child remain in the classroom, what certain factors should I keep an eye out for as a parent or as a student? Yeah, so some of the things that we had discussed earlier are the factors that need to be taken into schools. And just to kind of go over it again, uh, the, the, the further each student is away from each other, the better. Generally, six feet apart, although we have seen some data that even if it's a little closer, uh, it, it, it's rel it, it can be okay. I mean, the further out, the better, but uh, I've heard data that suggests that even three feet is better, of course, than, than being right next to each other. Uh, so that would be really uh, a huge factor. The other important factor, as we talked about, is the importance of, of universal face coverings. The, the, and and the, the, the principle is really, if you are not having symptoms, but you could be infected and you don't know it, uh, having that barrier really is effective in blocking the, the particles and the virus from spreading to others. Uh, and then you start talking about other things such as ventilation, circulations of the room, uh, and the availability of disinfectants, hand washing. Uh, so those are all factors that play into 
uh, reopening of schools and being as safe as possible. But I do want to under, uh, underscore that there's one area that we sometimes forget, and that is just the impact of, of kids and behaviors and so forth. I mean, it's not only are we talking about, I mean, you can have everything right from an environmental standpoint, but if kids are not going to be wearing that mask, the younger kids may not wear that mask. The older kids may continue to mill around uh, and, and be close to each other uh, when, I mean, these are old habits die hard. Yeah. So, you know, these, so it's not just having the right conditions and the spacing. It's also about ensuring that the behaviors that we're so used to, to, to doing uh, need to be modified. And that's a, that's a huge uh, opportunity in and of itself. Yeah, because I'm even thinking about um, colleges, you know, um, and depending on where some schools are located, you know, students don't stay on campus, they go off campus. And if you're in certain areas where mask coverings aren't required for navigating public spaces, you know, the students can go off campus, take their mask off, or they're at a restaurant and, you know, they're eating, so they're taking their mask off. But then they come back on campus potentially infected, you know, but, you know, it goes back to what you're saying about ventilation, but we can't control certain behaviors that could um, increase the risk of contracting this virus. That's what I'm hearing you say. Oh, exactly, Milan. I mean, it, it, the behaviors are, are, are really what's going to drive this. I mean, you've heard about the term, the bubble. You know, if everyone was in a bubble, everyone got tested frequently uh, and remained within that bubble, then your chances of acquiring or getting disease and spreading somewhere else is very low because you are within that bubble. But in, co in college campuses, and especially uh, where there are environments in which you're not able to get tested frequently, that is really one of our big barrier still is the inability to get students and teachers tested regularly and in a timely manner, you're still, you're going to have uh, some issues with the uh, transmission. Yeah, and that's another thing. Even if there is access to testing, the results take a long time. I know earlier this summer, I did have symptoms that caused me to worry if I had contracted the virus. Um, so I went to get tested, but it took almost two weeks for me to get my test my results back. So it was almost like, well, I felt better. And, you know, assuming I didn't have the virus, but, you know, at that point, if I found out that I had it, you know, it was just, you know, I wish I would have known that I was negative sooner that day or the next day. And it seems like that's common. So one of the things that we have advised our schools and the Department of Health which, which oversees, of course, the, the contact tracing and, and much of the testing results is that you need to prioritize schools to make sure that you get testing as frequently as possible um, and that you get the results in a timely manner. Uh, be, because really, I mean, there's really no other institution, I mean, or very few that reach that area where you've got all the kids congregating together as schools. And so as a result, you know, we want to prioritize and make sure that we got adequate testing for our students and teachers. That is a priority. And we hope that that will be the case as our schools reopen. And do you see, this, this, this just came to me, do you see even like a shortage of testing because of all that would be required to ensure the safety of students and teachers on a regular basis? Is there a possibility that we could run out or run low very quickly 
uh, of tests? Well, the, the availability and timing of tests is a function of how many cases you've got in your community. In Florida, uh, in, in mid to late July, I mean, we, the, the, the delays were a lot worse just because there were so many tests that were being run and, and there was a the demand just outstripped supply. It's a little bit better now because our cases in Florida are dropping. And so if you are able to be in a community where you don't have a huge number of cases, then you won't have as much of a backlog and you can get testing uh, done quicker. So really, it, it's really for each community to get their cases as low as possible. That will increase the availability and the timing of your tests. And so one thing that's really important uh, for, for, uh, for our viewers to, to know is that you've got to look at the case rates of your community. You may be living in, you know, in Hawaii. I mean, it could be anywhere in the States, uh, you know, East Coast, West Coast, you know, and, and it's important to understand the rates of infection in your community, the percent that are positive, whether the trends are going up or going down, because it's all a local decision. And the United States is such a large um, heterogeneous uh, area that you just can't use one number to help it. You've got to use a variety of different numbers for your locality to help you make that best decision. And I love what you're saying about you empowering yourself. You know, it's one thing to rely on news coverage that could include a region far beyond where you live, but it comes down so... Um, I live in one county separate from where I work. So it would be, you know, upon me um, to do my own research as well to see whether or not, um, you know, I could be an informed um, citizen when I, if I choose to uh, go in and out of certain places. So you're saying, you know, the data is out there. We can all access it. Yeah, yeah the data is available through the local health department. So for example, if you're a church and you are saying, we are thinking about reopening, what are the things that you want to look at? You want to look at the rate of infections in your community, mm -hmm. uh, the, you know, per population. You want to look at the percent of tests that are positive and see whether that's going up or going down. Um, I mean, these are the factors that help. We want to empower churches, individuals, schools to look at their data and to make decisions based on that data, because it's not going to be a one-size-fits-all. And unfortunately, uh, you know, sometimes the political uh, structure is that sometimes those decisions are kind of made for you. Uh, but in an ideal situation, uh, every institution would make the best decisions based on their own data uh, and based on science. And I love that you touched on churches, because that's something else I wanted to address um, and like you said before, things vary from state to state, city to city, county to county. But, you know, many, as you know, you've already received questions about when can we go back to our physical houses of worship? So when do you foresee, generally speaking, that um, churches would be able to reopen? Yeah, so, you know, there's really very little data or guidance on what the actual hard numbers are. The WHO, World Health Organization, has provided guidance that says 
that you should have less than 5% positivity rates. You, the number of cases in your community should be less than 100 per 100,000. You need to be having a 50% drop of a certain, I mean, there's a lot of different numbers to look at. Unfortunately, the vast majority of our uh, regions in the U.S. are nowhere near that. Hmm. So, so you're not going to be able to, to use those hard uh, guidance at numbers because you would probably never be able to open uh, you know, for, for a long, long time. But the principles are still there. Looking at your community numbers, making sure that your trends are going down, um, and, and seeing what other I mean, you can certainly look at your other, maybe there are other churches in the region that have opened, looking to see whether there's any reports of outbreaks or schools. Looking at what we've learned is also very good information to help you make a decision. But at some point, if the numbers look good, other institutions have opened, look pretty good, then I think it's reasonable to start saying maybe we can start doing it safely. And then when you start reopening, I would urge and, and ask that we start slowly. Don't just all of a sudden say we're going to be at full capacity, but rather, as we have seen in many of the state's phase reopenings, have a phase one, phase two. Start with 25%. Ensure the social distancing. Ensure adherence to universal face coverings. See how things work for a while. And then as things get better, you can then ramp it up a little bit more, ramp it up a little bit more. So that would be the general uh, approach that I would advise at the churches when it comes to reopening. Yeah, and even when we do reopen the physical structures, I'm thinking, so I'm a pastor's kid. Um, I've been around many churches, um, primarily Black Adventist churches, but just how worship operates and how fellowship operates within a church it's definitely not socially distant. It is hard to imagine um, what that type of service would look like. You know, there's a lot of hugging, there's like close praying, there's singing. And that's another thing. Will we ever get to hear choirs in person again? Um, because like, it seems like singing, you know, you have in way more droplets that are being put in the air. So even how we interact in person whenever that day comes will be drastically different. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that it's going to be different for, for a while. Uh, I mean, and, and, and to the point of singing, yes, I would really urge caution about singing because there's nothing quite like vocalization that really pushes those, those particles out. And we've seen uh, plenty of data about how singing has really uh, infected a lot of people. Uh, I mean, at least early on before they used uh, face coverings. Of course, with face coverings, it's a little bit better, but still, I would, I would, it would probably be one of the last things that I would recommend doing. And, but, but I would say this, the fact that you are actually in person is a first step. So yes, recognize we're not going to be where we want to be. No one wants to be, we, we all wanted to go back and, you know, to, to where it was. And I'm sure that at some point, Point, we will be there but you've got to start somewhere and just opening it up just being able to just to be able to have a few of, of our members get together in a, in a in a safe distance apart is is going to be a very fir, a good first step and I think that will help the congregation recognize that we are on our first steps to getting normal and I think that will be a first of all relief to just know that you'll be able to do that so um, I think it's a good thing uh, overall. Yeah. So what 
type of fellowship do you recommend in the meantime, you know, until we're able to do that kind of phase one of going back to houses of worship, you know, what do you recommend until then? Well, there, there are various ways to do that. Um, you know, I mean, I think if, if you're really trying to take an extremely conservative uh, point of view or, or approach, uh, you know, you would ask uh, members to come in uh, as a, uh, you know, in their family units. We wouldn't separate the family units, obviously. The family units could be grouped together, for example, uh, in a table, and then each unit of family members could be grouped again in, in tables a few feet apart from each other uh, so that you've got that. Um, you know, the stage, uh, you know, could, you know, could be playing certain instruments, uh, guitar, you know, there could, you know, usually the stage is, is far enough apart from the audience. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's, you know, depending upon how your system is, you may or may not require face coverings for, uh, for those that are on stage, it, it just really depends upon the situation, you know, but just being able to hear the sermon, for example, you know, in a live setting with some of your other neighbors, I think is really going to be a very, uh, it's going to be a good first step. And that would be my approach. I would avoid, again, I, I would probably avoid congregational singing at this time. Mm -hmm. uh, just because we, we don't know enough about uh, exactly, even if masks are enough to, to stop that. But again, just start slowly. Um, I would avoid, you know, the, yeah, the, the hugging and, and, and other close contact is something that I would avoid as well. But just get them in the room and, you know, and, and start there. If you are in, a, in an atmosphere or a, an environmental situation where you can open the windows, for example, that would, that would be also very beneficial to increase circulation. I know it's very difficult in, in hot and humid conditions, though. So it really depends. Um, start slowly. But again, that first step is still going to be a, a psychological, I think, you know, um, benefit to know that we are moving in the right direction. Yeah. And until then, we still have to um, do our Zoom congregations, right, and Zoom prayer meetings, Zoom small groups. I know people are getting so weary of Zoom, but that's the safest course of action right now in terms of how we um, interact with other um, members of our faith community. And, and there will be some members who just aren't going to feel comfortable going in. They are going to want to continue to Zoom in. So, you know, the churches need to be prepared to be able to accommodate both the uh, both those that want to come in person as well as those who want to be remote kind of the the hybrid solutions and it, many schools are doing that as well they've got uh, a, a, you know some who come in face to face others learn remotely uh, like my children are they're really learning remotely and we've got to figure out how to do that i mean this might be something that doesn't ever go away we may every church may just have streaming options from now on just to accommodate that. And maybe it's a good thing, you know, that we, that we learn this technology and to our advantage. As someone who's an introvert, I don't mind at all uh, worshiping from home. <laughs> um, you know, I do miss, you know, seeing some people, but, you know, big crowds is something that I generally like to shy away from. So I don't mind Zoom um, worship, but I know others are really anxious to see other people. Um, so I can extend compassion. Exactly. So now I want to um, talk about what it would be like or when we're able to fully reenter. That seems like 
a vaccine would be the best way, and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but to ensure um, a safe way to re-enter uh, larger groups of people is we won't be able to do that until we get a vaccine. There's really only two ways that that we are able to achieve the herd immunity that we talk about, where you know a significant number of immune folks are able to block transmission so it doesn't spread to others. It's either through a vaccine that we're all talking about because that would be ideal, um, or you just got to get infected, uh, and that's not ideal, uh, obviously. I mean. People have talked about trying to get herd immunity by infections in a controlled manner. Uh, again, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of discussion about how to do this, but I think we're all looking forward to getting a vaccine there. Now, just a brief introduction or primer on, on vaccine development. I mean, this is one area where the political will um, has really moved so quickly. I've never, we've never seen vaccines development you know for in, in this type of given this type of speed before and that's really uh, good news but there's going to be a variety there's a variety of different manu vaccine manufacturers that are going to that and there're going to be different vaccines that are available they may not be equally efficacious uh, and so you have to realize that you know it's not going to be just like a single great vaccine uh, that's going to give you complete immunity there's no vaccine it's 100% uh, able to protect you, and there's no vaccine that's exactly 100% safe, although you want it to be as safe as possible. The other concern, of course, is that even if a vaccine is available, the time it takes to, to manufacture for 330 million Americans and get it deployed and distributed and vaccinated, it's going to take months to years to actually get that, to, to get that done effectively. Wow. So, you know, you may, you know, we may, we may hear of a vaccine that gets approved in, for example, November 2020, as an example. Uh, but, but, but for the time it takes to, to, to identify who the most vulnerable, who are, need, who are the first priority to get it, um, and then get enough uh, vaccines distributed to everybody is going to take time. So I would urge that we're, that we are, that we be cautious, that we, recognize that our planning isn't to just look at the fact that, oh, a vaccine's approved, we're safe, it's gonna take a while. So just remember that. And I think there's some experts uh, that have been talking about, they say probably you should look at 2020, uh, toward the end of 2021, maybe 2022, where we can then say everything is is more back to normal, but again, things will probably come in phases as well. So yeah. you know, it just it just depends. It's it's hard to say. Yeah, but even hearing you say 2021, 2022, I was like, whoa, you know. Um, but that's something that we all have to come to terms with. It's going to take a while. Um, but I'm glad you mentioned, you know, how quickly this is happening in terms of a vaccine development. So I know I have a bit of anxiety about hearing about a vaccine developed so quickly. So can this fast-tracked uh, vaccine development be fully trusted? Should people wait for like a second run, you know, maybe not the first vaccine that comes out or, you know, so what, what are your thoughts on um, uh, trusting how quickly it's coming out. Like you said, you know, uh, a vaccine could be out in a couple months. 
yeah, so so that is really a, a tough question. Mm. You know, I mean, you you want. I would say that if you can't afford to wait, I would probably wait a little bit longer just to make sure that we get more reports about any potential side effects that might occur. Because even after a vaccine is deemed safe and, and efficacious, there are reports and uh, that have surfaced. You know, for other vaccines, not COVID nineteen vaccines, but other vaccines in which there were some side effects that led to a recall of that vaccine. Uh, as well. So for, you know, for those reasons, you know, you, you, you want to make sure that there's enough data that's collected. Um, and we call those phase four trials. Those are, those are trials that occur after a vaccine is, is licensed. And there's going to be a lot of pressure to approve a vaccine right. quicker, even before uh, all, the, all the processes are normally taken care of in developing a normal vaccine. Now there are going to be, but but again, you know, we are moving very quickly. I and and I would say that as time goes on, you know, we are going to be improving to a more normal state. So it's not like it's not like you're going to have to act the way we do now for for a year or two years. I mean, I think we'll be moving closer, so that will be a good. But I think for those of us who are able to wait. Uh, and just kind of get some data about vaccines and, and how they're being received uh, and the potential side effects and consequences, I think it would be reasonable to do, to do so. And additionally, I think you know, the prioritization is going to be focused on, on patients who are really in really uh, tough medical straits. For example, those who are in nursing homes are likely going to be first priority to get that uh, just because they haven't seen the light of day almost, you know, you know, they've been locked up, uh, you know, not able to see visitors. And right. I think in some groups, the, the benefits of early vaccination outweighs the risks. Mm. Yeah, wow. So, and also speaking about um, vaccines, it's making me think of the upcoming flu season. Um, how, if any, anyway, would the flu season impact what's going on with the coronavirus outbreak? So Milan, you, you touched on a very, very important topic, and, and this is the issue of, of influenza. Here's what we know so far. In, in certain, you know, right now, flu season is occurring in the Southern Hemisphere. So we've got some data from Australia, New Zealand, uh, Chile, for example. And the good news is this, they have not seen a significant number of flu cases. Um, now, there's many reasons for that. Maybe they've increased the vaccination rates, but probably the most important issue is that uh, is that the 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 behaviors necessary to prevent COVID transmission are the same behaviors that okay. that prevent you from getting the flu. So if you so and 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 the WHO has said that they have not seen, so far, they haven't seen a significant uh, winter uh, wave with COVID-19. So the cases have been mild uh, in, this, in the Southern Hemisphere. They've been practicing social distancing, universal face masking. We haven't seen a winter wave for COVID. So those are all good things. And hopefully that will translate itself into Northern Hemisphere, but, and this is a very big but, I think everybody, this is, if, if, if you are on the fence about flu vaccination before, you, this is the time to get off the fence and get, and get vaccinated. If we aren't able to change our behaviors significantly, if there's significant amount of flu transmission that it does occur, 
And there's, by, by extension, there will probably be a lot of COVID transmission as well. You do not want to get both COVID and flu. Remember, there's a vaccine for flu. There's a vaccine yeah. for flu. You should get that. It's not 100% by any means effective. But, you know, a little bit of effectiveness is still better than nothing. And what I'm afraid of is that during a flu season in a society that perhaps isn't able to adhere to the measures to prevent COVID transmission, that we could start seeing a surge of flu cases on top of COVID cases, which could lead to a very bad winter. So we do not want that to happen. So we've seen some good signs from the Southern Hemisphere, but we need to do everything we can in the Northern Hemisphere to make sure that we don't see a, a different outcome uh, during flu season. Yeah, because I'm even thinking about um, the early months of coronavirus coming to the US and the burden it was uh, uh, placing on hospitals and um, places that offer health care of, you know, so many people getting infected and then having to go to the hospital all back to back to back. And I'm aware that flu season is very busy for hospitals. Um, you know, people may not think, or maybe we're so used to hearing the flu that we don't realize the severity of the flu and the virus and how, um, how much is needed to care for people who have the flu. So it sounds like there is a possibility to see another wave of burdening our hospitals and our healthcare providers if there are a lot of people who get the flu and then who possibly also get coronavirus. Absolutely, because during flu season, you're already kind of at the peak. I mean, at least in Florida, our our, our flu season, January, February, March, tend to be the busiest uh, inpatient seasons where there's lots of admissions because of flu and other respiratory viruses. You add COVID on coronavirus on top of that, uh, it could really add for a bad formula. And again, the single best thing that everyone can do to prevent themselves from getting the flu um, is to get the flu vaccine. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Shu. It, is there anything else that um, I may have missed that you would like to ensure that our audience and viewers um, take from this conversation? Any, uh, uh, you know, special or very important tips that we should keep in mind as we move forward this year? I think we talked about the main things. I mean, as, as we look to the end, I, I, I want to end on an optimistic note. You know, I know God will see us through this. We will become stronger people because of this. Um, you know, we are going through a very difficult time, but I don't see this, uh, I don't see this lasting. I, I, I only see this getting better as we move closer to a, to a vaccine, as we understand more about the disease. So, so stay uh, stay hopeful, stay strong. We'll get through this. Thank you so much, Dr. Shu. Again, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. And hopefully we can speak, you know, again, um, hopefully with in a more uh, positive setting. But um, I, again, just thank you for your willingness to talk to us about this and the information that you've shared and helping us um, be empowered and informed. So thank you. Thank you. It was my pleasure, Milan. Thank you for tuning into this episode of NAD News Points on the Air. Check out Advent Health's new coronavirus resource website, specifically curated for faith communities. Go to adventhealth.com.
adventhealth.com slash church resources. That's adventhealth.com slash church resources. The executive producers of NAD Newspoints on the Air are Daniel Weber, Director of the North American Division Communication Department, and Julio Munoz and Kimberly Moran, who are the department's associate directors. NAD Newspoints on the Air is produced, edited, and hosted by me, Milan Medley. To keep up with news from the North American Division, be sure to subscribe to Newspoints, a weekly digital newsletter with news stories, special announcements, and ministry resources. Visit nadavenist.org, then click on news. That's it for this week. See you next time.